Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Uh, let me just again say happy birthday and happy anniversary to Crosspoint. Ten years ago, um, I the night before we started Crosspoint, I was very anxious and nervous and I had a terrible dream that, uh, if you remember the, the building, for those of you that were with us, we were renting out a school about 10, 15 miles north of here, and there was this big tree out in front of the yard, and I had a dream that children were climbing up to the top of the tree during the service and falling, plummeting to serious injury on the front lawn of the school that we were, that we were renting out. And I kind of woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat that I was causing injury to young children by starting this church. Last night, I had another terrible dream. And the dream was is that um, it was in the setting of the church that I kind of grew up in El Centro, California. We had all gathered for our 10-year anniversary in my hometown of El Centro. And uh, there was this, like, prosperity gospel church that had come to join us for the service and had sent their choir and they were practicing a really horrible theological wrong song before the service and I had to go up and I got in a fight with their choir director (laughs) saying no we're not going to sing that song and then I woke up and said well thank you Lord for 10 years it just sort of bookended these 10 years with terrible dreams um and the text that we're going over is about Joseph, the dream interpreter. So um, if you, any of you have the gift that Joseph had to interpret dreams, please tell me what a basket case I am over lunch. Um, in the small chance that the power goes out or the tornado sirens go off and we're in the darkness here, um, what I think our plan will be is I will just shout a prayer. And for those of us that want to stick around and ride out the storm, we'll just kind of go eat lunch whenever the lights go out. But until that time, we're going we're gonna to plow on. So Genesis chapter 40 and 41, these, this beautiful story of Joseph interpreting dreams. Have you ever said, I, I, I know I've said this, and I hear people say it often, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing it, but I want us to think about what we're thinking about when we say this phrase. Have you ever said when things seem to really work out strangely, providentially, for your good or blessing, don't we sometimes say, Wow, that was really a God thing. Don't we say that often? Yeah. Now, I don't want to be the, you know, I'm not trying to be the Christian expression police, right? So don't feel bad for using that phrase. I've used it. I'm sure many of you have used it as well. Now, I'm not trying to be that guy that's, a, you know, raining on everybody's parade. But I want to press on that, that little phrase that we say so often. As we look at this chapter, actually... Everything is a God thing. Every good, every bad, every, every snowflake that falls, every, every moment of triumph, every moment of tragedy, I want us to see that God is working all things together for the glory of His name and for the good of His people. And so here's the point. I want us to just stare at this for a second on the screen. One main point, this is the main point of today before we even read it, and it is this. God is in control of everything. You can put it on the screen there. I need you to, there we go. God is in complete control 
of everything that happens and directs human history and the lives of his people for their ultimate good and his glory. I think that's what this passage is about. I think that's one of the great underlying themes of the Bible. I'll read it again. God is in complete control of everything that happens from triumph to tragedy and directs human history and the lives of his people for their ultimate good and his glory. And I think that's the point of Genesis 40 and 41 as we look at the life of Joseph. Okay, now I'm going to give you an outline right up front. We're going to shoot it up on the screen just so you can follow along. You need to write it down if you're a note taker because this is the only time it'll be up. Just three words. And as my anniversary gift to some of you who love this type of thing, and I never do it, Jay Hearn, you're going to love it. I have alliterated these points. They all start with a P. Three points in the outline. We're going to look at pain, position, and providence. We're going to look at Joseph's pain, and then the position that it put him in, and ultimately God's providence. Pain, position, providence. Happy anniversary gift to you, Jay Hearn. Let me pray, and then, and then we'll read. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. As we look at your word today, and this incredible story of Joseph, we, we thank you for being so kind to us in particular as a church in these 10 years. Lord, you have been good. And I pray that as we look at your word, that you would show us, show us afresh your grace to us in Christ that believers in this room would be strengthened and fortified and would take courage in the face of our present circumstances. And for unbelievers that are here in this room, people that are not yet trusting in Christ, I pray that, that your sovereign beauty and what you have done in Christ on the cross would be so clear and real and true that it would melt hard hearts and that you would transform lives today and rescue people by the beauty of what Jesus has done. I pray, Lord, that you would do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. I'm just going to read quickly, comment along the way, and then we'll conclude with a few final thoughts. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt, so if you remember, Joseph is in prison, right? He has been thrown into prison for being falsely accused of trying to assault the wife of his master, Potiphar. He was falsely accused. We talked last week about how he resisted her sexual advances, and now he's in prison. Again, the second time he's been wrong. The first time he was sold by his brothers into slavery unjustly. Then he was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife. Now he's in prison. And now we see some more pain he's going to endure. So sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in prison where Joseph was confined. Verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. <laughs> Think about this just for a second. Joseph has been wronged twice, and yet he is still like prospering. He has a good attitude. He's, he's making the best out of his situation, and he gets to a point where even in prison, he's promoted to a position where he's in some sort of you know, authority. I mean, talk about blooming where you were planted. Like, Joseph, if it had been me, I'd have been in the corner complaining. You know, like, what in the world? 
Potiphar's wife, my brothers, you know, my, I would have ground my teeth into just little stumps from just anger. And Joseph is, is the, actually the opposite of that. Verse 5, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and, and this baker, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? I mean, if I'm in Joseph's situation, somebody else's bad dream is the last thing on my mind. You know, I mean, this guy, Joseph is a selfless dude. I would have been, again, I would have been in the corner saying, man, you don't know how bad I got it. But he's concerned for his his cellmates. Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So Joseph is reflecting, he's he's pointing them to God. Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall see Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only, verse, 15, verse 14, Joseph says, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So he says, hey, when it goes well for you, when this dream comes through, and you're back before your boss, hey, let him know about my plight. You know, get me out of this, this thing here. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw the interpretation, that the interpretation was favorable, he said, hey, I want to get in on a little bit of this. It went well for my buddy, the cupbearer. Let me tell Joseph my dream. So he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head, and Joseph answered them and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Oh, snap, it didn't go so well for this guy, did it? Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, yet, verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So now Joseph has been wronged three times. Once by his brothers, sold into slavery. Once by Potiphar's wife, falsely accused of trying to assault her. 
And now, after he tells the, these two dreams, both of them coming true, the cupbearer making it out of prison, the baker being killed, and now this cupbearer does not remember Joseph. And what we'll see here in just a moment as we read chapter 41 is that God is using Joseph's pain and trial to put him in a position so that through Joseph, he can bless many people. And friends, this is not just a one-time thing in the scriptures. This isn't just a sort of isolated story, but this is a pattern throughout all of scriptures. And, And this is the way God even works in our lives. This is what Jesus says about just trials, about how the world hates him and how it will hate us. Jesus, in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, this is the way God has worked with his people from the beginning. It's the way God still works in our day. God uses pain and things that happen to us in great, horrible ways to position and to exalt and to show the surpassing worth of what it means to obey God for his great purpose. Well, chapter 41, now we see this pain that Joseph has endured, how it puts him in this providential position. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, not just like a couple weeks, but two more years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile. This is fun. Kids, I know you're in the service. Listen, this is really cool. Picture this. There came up out of the Nile, which is a river, seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. So you've got 14 cows, seven plump ones and seven skinny ones. Verse 4, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. So we got skinny cows eating chubby cows. That's what's happening here. And Pharaoh awoke. So, you know, Pharaoh had bad dreams too, like I did. Verse 5, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And so a sort of repeat, this time seven ears of grain that are plump, and then seven scraggly ears of grain grow up. Verse 7, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit, spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, oh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, 
He interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, now now Joseph is before the ruler of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16 is very telling. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now that language is really, it's, it's really strong there. It, it, Joseph is, is kind of moving past any formal way of addressing the leader of, of, the, of Egypt. And he's just very quickly deflecting credit and giving glory to God. It's almost borderline disrespectful to speak to Pharaoh in this way. It's as if Joseph is agitated that there would be any sense that this gift rests in him. He wants to quickly give glory to God. He's just agitated, like, no, it's not me. It has to be God. And I just thought about this, just kind of even my own sort of self-centered life. Like, I just contrasted Joseph's agitation with even potentially getting any glory with kind of like often sort of our Aw, shucks, you know, just aw, shucks, you know, give glory to God, but thank you for the compliment. Aw, you know, and I just thought about, man, Joseph was agitated, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, kind of the humble brag. Ah, it was all God. You know know what I mean? Maybe maybe I'm the only self-absorbed one here in the audience, I don't know. You guys are like, I don't know what you're talking about, Brad. I mean, I really identify with Joseph there. Okay, anyway, I'm the only bad Christian in the crew. And notice here, too, just that God gave Joseph a gift for his redemptive purpose, right? And he has done that. If you are a believer in Jesus, if Christ has taken your dead heart and he's made it new, and he's given you life in Christ, he has, by his Holy Spirit, given you a gift by which you can serve his people and his purposes. Now, maybe it's not dream interpretation. This is a particularly spectacular gift here. It uh, is, is really used in a mighty way in God's redemptive plan. But every Christian has been given a gift. First Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Just a few quick thoughts on gifts before we move on, on how God gives gifts. One, every Christian has been gifted in some way to serve and edify and build up the body of Christ. So the question comes then, do, do you... Do you know what your gifts are? Do you know how God has gifted you? And, and are you using them? Second thought about gifts that we see that God gives people. Is there, there are several lists of gifts, gifts in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 12 has some lists. Here in 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4 has a, a list of gifts. Romans 12 is another place where several types of gifts that God gives us people. I don't think those gifts are, those lists of gifts in the Bible are exhaustive, but they are a sort of starting point. And then the third thing I would say is that, and how do you discover and determine your gifts? And let me just give you three quick little, little thoughts about how, if you're wrestling with, how can I determine like, my spiritual gifts and, and what they are? And, 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 and I think some Christians have, 
have wrestled with this, and I think there are some decent tools out there, maybe some questionnaires. I think a better and maybe more organic way to think about your spiritual gifts that you may have that God has given you to use for, for His glory and the building up of His, His body and His people and His mission is that what, what is kind of in your heart? What's this internal desire? So what do you internally desire to do? Do you have a desire? In fact, that's an evidence of your salvation. If you don't have any desire to serve God in any way, then you may not really be a Christian. Like that's one of the fruits of, of having a new heart is you have this desire to obey God and a desire to bless His people. So, so what are some of the things that you desire to do, to serve in certain ways? And don't limit it just to the things that are mentioned in the Bible, like you know, the things that sort of get sort of high visibility notice, like maybe speaking in front of people or teaching or singing or whatever. I mean, just this morning, there were some guys here a couple hours ago setting up tables. Scotty Hill was laying on his back in the kitchen fixing a refrigerator. I don't know what was going on over there. Bill Harrison, uh, uh, Byron Bricado, Will Chambliss, sweating, man, uh, uh, just carrying chairs, just, just doing stuff. And like, that's a spiritual gift, right? <laughs> just to serve, to bless. So, so what, what, how do you like, feel like God is going to... And then secondly, so there's this internal desire to serve God in some capacity in some way. Secondly, there's this sort of external confirmation from people around you that know you, that are God's people that say, yeah, you, you seem to be gifted in that way, you know, right? You're gifted because, you know, sometimes we can deceive ourselves, right? Right? Into thinking that we're gifted in some way. You guys have all watched the first few weeks of American Idol, right? <laughs> so you, 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 you realize it's possible that you may think you have a gift, but nobody else does, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a possibility. Let's just be humble and admit that, right? I can sing in the shower, but that's about the only place I sound good. And so, so you know, there's this internal desire. There's this external confirmation that, yeah, you, you seem to be, you know, honoring God and encouraging people in that way. And then thirdly, there's this opportunity for you to do that in your context, your local church. And sometimes you have to initiate that desire. You know, sometimes you got to be a big boy or a big girl and say, hey, I'm going to kind of pave the way for me to use my gifts and not just wait on somebody to recognize it in you and call on you. Like, no, boy, I wish I could do this, but nobody notices this. Nobody notices this. And then you get angry because nobody notices you and you sit over in the corner and you pout. Right? Don't we do that? But, but we see here that God has gifted Joseph and he's gifted every Christian. Think about that, friends. That might be a good just conversation or meditation for you to think about this week. How has God gifted me? How can I think about discovering? Maybe I can just sit down with another trusted Christian and say, what are some things that you see in me that, that God has given me that I can bless the body with? And then start having a conversation with leaders, pastors around you on how you can do that for God's glory and your joy. So verse 17, let's go on. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, because he's quickly deflected credit and said, no, it's not me, it's God that can give this interpretation. So then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. I would have loved to have seen that. But when, I mean, talk about mad cow disease. That was it right there in the Bible. Verse 21, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them for while they were still for, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. 
I also saw in my dream seven ears growing in one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east winds sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Verse 25, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. Verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, That's symbolized by the fat cows and the plump ears of of grain. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And, of course, that's symbolized by the thin, ugly cows and the, the thin, weak ears of grain. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean that the th- means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, verse 33, Joseph transitions here from interpreting, explaining the dream, to then offering a solution, pointing him to a plan. Verse 33, Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." So Joseph didn't only interpret his dream, he came up with a plan to save Egypt. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now don't be fooled there, Pharaoh didn't just have a conversion experience here. When he says the Spirit of God, he was probably like he was a pluralistic pagan worshiper of many false gods and he's just sort of attributing some special blessing to Joseph not necessarily all of a sudden believing in the true God of the Bible verse 39 then Pharaoh said to Joseph since God has shown you all this there is none so discerning and wise as you are you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So friends, just take in the dramatic turn of events. From being sold by his brothers, to being lied about by Potiphar's wife, to being forgotten by the the cupbearer, he's now being exalted to the second place of authority in all of Egypt, only more powerful than, than the Pharaoh is the only one more powerful than he. Verse 41 said, uh, verse 41 says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen. Oh, remember Joseph's coat? I mean, his coat got him in trouble with his brothers. His garment got him in trouble with Potiphar's wife. And now he's bearing this garment of 
praise and position and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of Egypt. I mean, talk about going from the, from the, from the, Something to the something. I'm, I'm losing my feet. You know what I'm talking about. From the poorhouse to the penthouse. That's what I was thinking about. It just totally lost me there. And he gave him, and so he put him over all the land of Egypt. Verse 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Penea. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it. For it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore, him, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Then the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Wow. Praise God for what he has done through Joseph. And friends, I have this written down a few points, but I just I can't bear not to just get to it right now. Who is Joseph pointing us to? This isn't just a story of boys and girls. If you will take it in the chin and, you know, be good and not retaliate and keep your anger in check, then God will bless you and things will go well for you. Friends, that's not the moral of the story. Joseph is a picture of the true and better son to come, who is Jesus, who is sinned against in far greater ways than Joseph ever was, and then bears the scorn of that trial and sin against him and dies for it and then becomes the bread, not just this storehouse of grain, but he becomes the bread, the only bread that can satisfy all those that come to him. Oh, I couldn't resist. I have it written later on down, but we just have to see Jesus in all of this, don't we? That Jesus is the true and better Joseph. So we see as we bring this to a conclusion here that God brought Joseph from pain to a position of influence so that God could use him providentially to not only save Egypt, but all of Israel. Friends, as we said at the beginning, God is in control of human history. 
In fact, I think that's the main point. God is in complete control of everything that happens. We read it at the beginning. And directs human history and the lives of his people to accomplish his purpose for their ultimate good and his glory. Now, don't just believe that because it's an implication of this story or I just came up with that sentence there. Believe it because we see it all throughout the Bible. Listen to what God says to Israel later on in their history in Isaiah 46. When they are in rebellion and when these nations that hated God around them, God is using them to punish Israel. This is what God says to his people and to the nations around him about his sovereign providential control over all things. Isaiah 46 verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all. All my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far journey, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Friends, God is in complete control of every aspect of human history, every global event, every king, every president, every pauper, every person. God is in complete and utter control of the great and grand scope of human history. But not just grand human history. He's in control of our very lives, the very details, the very days of our lives. Psalm 139 verse 16 says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is King David writing this beautiful psalm. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when yet there was none of them. Praise God, friends. Just think about for a second the implications of that. Like, I was talking to a sister this week about a potentially dangerous situation that we may be in on a mission trip in coming months. And I just thought, you know, you know, my days are written. Nobody can... God has a day marked in history when Brad will breathe his last and stand before God. And no knucklehead on this earth can short-circuit that plan right? Every day was formed. And what this should produce in us is just reckless abandon and trust and obedience because God is in control of all things. And friends, we see this most supremely, not just in the great grand scope of the earth and human history, not just in the very days of our lives, but in the greatest tragedy and pain in the history of the universe, in the crucifixion of God the Son on the cross. Listen to what Paul, or listen to what uh, Luke writes in Acts chapter 2. It's a sermon from the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the, look at these words, definite 
plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So God hasn't just superintended human history. He hasn't just superintended the details of our lives. He has superintended the greatest evil and tragedy and pain in the history of the universe, the crucifixion of the Son of God, to bring about the salvation of his people so that they could come just like these people came to Egypt so that people could come and be saved from the famine of their sin. Friends, do you see that? That is the gospel. Is that where your hope is? God is sovereign. That is etched in stone and without a doubt. But is, he sov- is, is his goodness, is his grace and his mercy over you? Are you in Christ? Because the only way that his sovereign care works out for your good is if you are trusting in what God has done in Christ on the cross by putting our faith and our hope in Jesus that we are sinners. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. And God comes to us in the form of Jesus the Son, dies on the cross, bears his punishment for our sin and rebellion, and then rises again in victory over the grave as part of God's plan, now commanding all of us everywhere to turn from our counterfeit joys and our broken lusts and pleasures and to turn in faith and joy to him so that we can live and be safe and with him forever and ever. Friends, that is the gospel, and that is what you must do if you have not done that. Even now, trust in Christ and his grace on the cross for you. And I end with this, two implications of seeing that God is in utter control. One is that we can rest, can't we? Can't we rest? So who knows what tomorrow holds, right? But whatever it holds, God has written it down before one of my days even came into being. And so I'm not living for these 70 or 80 years. We can rest in God's utter care for us if we are in Christ. And the second thing we can do is that we can take courage. The psalmist writes in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the mountains be cast into the midst of the sea. God is our refuge. So whether the market crashes, or the spouse leaves, or the report comes back bad, or the, the terrorists continue to wreak havoc, and no matter if this person's elected president, or that happens, or whatever goes on, or I get deployed here or there, God is in control and we can take courage if we are in Christ. There were two men, two English preachers, pastors, scholars, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley who lived in the 1500s during the English Reformation. England was going back and forth between Catholic and Protestant control and it was quite bloody. In fact, that's when the Queen of England named Bloody Mary was over the throne, and she had uh, taken England back to sort of Catholicism and some of the bad doctrine that was there in the church at that time, and uh, against her father's bringing it to the Protestant Reformation, and she started to kill a whole bunch of Christians, and two of the Christians that she martyred, in fact, she burned them at the stake, were these two 
scholars, pastors, preachers named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And they're famous martyrs of the church because as they were being burned at the stake in England, and literally the flames were engulfing their bodies, Hugh Latimer turns to his friend Nicholas Ridley and he says, Take courage, Ridley, and play the man. Today we are going to light a fire in all of England that will never be put out by God's grace. In other words, even as the flames of his martyrdom were taking him to his death, Latimer shouts out to his boy, Ridley, take courage, my man. Play the man. God is in control. God is our refuge and strength. A mighty fortress. Even though the mountains be moved into the midst of the sea, we shall not fear. God is in control. God is in control of Joseph's life. He's in control of human history. He's in control of the cross and the plan of redemption. And he's in control of every detail of your life, dear friend no matter what tomorrow may hold. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I think of the man in Mark 9 who brings his son to you to be healed. And he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe these things, but not like I should. I believe that you're in control, but not like I ought to. Anchor it deep in our souls. Make this room full of people who are willing to give their lives away because nothing can thwart your plan. Because life is more than these 80 years. And you are the one that has marked our days. Therefore, we can give our lives away in reckless abandon because we will lose out on nothing if we have Christ. And God, I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in you, who have not made you their refuge in Christ, who have not trusted in him. May they see that their only hope is Christ their only hope from starving from the famine of this world and from destruction is coming to the storehouse of the bread of heaven which is Jesus and looking to him and being saved and not just being saved but being fed and being full and walking in joy Lord would you make that so clear that a person that has come into this room this morning not trusting in Christ, would look to him and be satisfied and place their hope in the resurrected king. Lord, would you do it for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name, amen.